The gospel lesson for today is from Mark chapter 4, verse 35. This can be found on page 1068 of your Pew Bible. After teaching increasingly large crowds near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus beckoned the disciples to cross with him to the other side and enter a different region. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Was anyone left wanting more of the story from Mark chapter 4? We had Janice read only one verse. You read it very well, Janice. And uh, I want you to open your pew Bible, if you've already put it away, back to page 1068. We are going to look at the rest of the story. We'll do a little Bible study this morning. The verse that Janice read serves as a hinge between two other stories. We're going to look at both of those today and see if they have any application for you and for me. The setting of the whole story is the ancient village of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. The Sea of Galilee really isn't a sea. It's more of a lake. It's a freshwater inland lake. I've seen it. It's still there today. It's about eight miles wide there in northern Israel. It reminds me a little bit of the freshwater lakes in Michigan where I grew up. Unlike the rest of Israel, which is mostly desert, this is a, a greener area. Some call it the Lake Gennesaret, but our biblical text calls it the Sea of Galilee. And we find ourselves in Capernaum in this story. We know that because in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus comes to Capernaum, which is on that western shore of the Sea of Galilee. In some sense, Capernaum might have been a ministry base for Jesus. We know that he didn't have a permanent home, but it says in one verse that he goes home after a long day of ministry in Capernaum. So Jesus frequented Capernaum and did a lot of ministry in the Galilee region. We know that he, in this story, is literally on the shore of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, because in chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us that the crowds got so large in Capernaum that he stands on a boat on the Sea of Galilee to deliver a sermon to the Capernaumites. And the rest of chapter 4 really is a transcript of that sermon that he preached there in Capernaum. There he is standing on the boat, talking with the fine folks of Capernaum, telling them parables. A parable is simply a vignette or a metaphor. It's easy to understand, but it points to profound truths. Jesus uses parables to teach in Capernaum. There's a common theme in the parables in Mark chapter 4. There's the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, of the mustard seed, And of the growing seed, most of those have the theme of being agricultural. Why is that? Well, Capernaum was a farming town. We know this from chapter 2, verse 23. Go ahead and look there if you have your Bible open. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Incidentally, it says, One Sabbath, 
Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of wheat. And that story goes on from there. But it seems from that text that you can hardly walk around Capernaum without walking through farmland. So it makes sense that Jesus, when he spoke to the Capernaumites, would speak in terms that they could understand. He would use agricultural parables so that the profound truths would be accessible to them. I even imagine him standing there on that boat, speaking with those in Capernaum. I imagine some of the folks there with maybe leather sacks over their shoulders with seeds in the sack. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a sower, maybe he said the kingdom of God is like that sower standing over there. And he throws his seed on the ground, and some of it lands on fertile soil, and others on the path, and rocky soil, and soil with weeds. Jesus was speaking to a group of people in terms they could understand. It even says in chapter 4, verse 33, With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. As they were able to hear it. We can learn something about Jesus in that. He's a very gracious teacher. If you think about this, if Jesus was who he said he was, that is the God of the universe, he would have had all the wisdom of the universe in his mind. And yet when he spoke, when he taught, it wasn't in profound concepts they couldn't understand. He could have done that. But he made it accessible to them. He spoke to farmers and said, the kingdom of God, this profound reality, this profound truth, the kingdom of God, it's like a sower. It's like a seed. It's like those plants over there. He made profound truths accessible to his audience in his grace. We also know that Capernaum was a religious town. It was a small town. It seemed to have an active synagogue. In the third chapter, we see Jesus going to the synagogue and characteristically getting in trouble with the Pharisees. He healed a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees dragged him out of the synagogue and and chastised him for that. So it makes sense If this is a religious town, a faithful town, it makes sense, again, that Jesus would choose parables about the kingdom. Not just because they were parables they could understand, but also because if they were faithful people, he didn't have to preach this sermon. Repent and turn from your wicked ways. Instead, he taught these already faithful people about the kingdom and how it would grow. So he was teaching to his audience We also know about Capernaum that there was a small industry there. Now, this isn't in the biblical text, but when you go to Capernaum today, you walk around the place and you see piled on top of of each other, all over the place, millstones. Way more millstones than a town that size would need. So it seems there was a business in Capernaum to make millstones for all the neighboring towns. So picture, I'm spending a lot of time setting up the scene here. Picture Capernaum. It's a town of... Small business owners, farmers, faithful people who went to church every week. So Jesus' sermon to them from that boat would have probably been pretty well received. Well, right up until the last line of his sermon. He concludes all his points, all his parables, and then he says what Janice read for us this morning. Verse 35, he says, now let's go to the other side. And for the Capernaumites, they may have heard that metaphorical needle sliding off the record at the end of his sermon. The other side? 
Jesus, why would you bring us to the other side? They knew what was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the land of the Gerasenes. The Capernaumites knew the people on the land, in the land of the Gerasenes for their unfaithfulness, for the fact that they had fallen prey to the cultural phenomenon of Hellenism, that Greco-Roman influence with all of its prostitution and bathhouses and entertainment and depravity. They knew that the people in the land of the Gerasenes were right next to what was called the Decapolis. The Decapolis, if you thought the land of the Gerasenes was bad, the Decapolis was even worse. It had totally fallen off the map into moral decay. The Capernaumites would have never wanted to go to the other side by those people. Trains were not invented yet, but if there were, this would have been the wrong side of the tracks. It's the wrong side of the lake. And last week, if you were here, you heard our guest preacher talk about Jesus and his final words to his followers before he ascends into heaven. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And people hated Samaria. So why is it that Jesus continually invites people across borders and into places that make them uncomfortable? Why is it? He did it in last week's sermon, and here he is doing it again by concluding his sermon saying, now let's go to the other side. Why does Jesus continually invite his followers to cross borders with him into places where they have legitimate, maybe, fears and concerns? Well, as we read the rest of the story, I think we'll get an answer to that question. Jesus could have just concluded the sermon and sailed away. But instead, he said, you Come with me to the other side. And apparently some people did. Some people got into that boat with him. It seems to be more than just his immediate disciples. Others heard his voice and said, I'll go. And they got in the boat with him. And look what happens. Just two verses later, verse 37, Mark 4, verse 37. A great windstorm arises. Now, there was no recording device on that boat, so we can't prove this historically, but I'll be willing to bet that somebody on that boat said, I told you we should have stayed in Capernaum. (laughs) A great windstorm. No sooner have they set sail across that eight nautical mile journey than a superstorm strikes. But now I want to show you what happens. I'm going to read verses 37 through 41. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So why did Jesus invite them off their shore of safety to go to the other side? I think it's because he wanted to show them something that he couldn't have shown them if they had stayed on the shore. 
He wanted to show them that he, his voice has authority over the wind and the waves. If you think about this, if Jesus was who he said he was, that is the God of the universe, it means he was there at the beginning of creation. That means it was his voice who spoke those wind and waves into being, into existence. So the wind and the waves would have recognized his voice. And he would have been their authority. Notice then in verse 41, suddenly the people in the boat, who are they afraid of now? Jesus. Wouldn't you be? As powerful as wind and waves are, suddenly there's a sleeping teacher on your boat who wakes up and has power over them. You might have been feeling, if you were on that boat, a feeling of tremendous ambivalence, a fear of him. I don't want to cross him now but also maybe attraction to him, being drawn to him. Who is this man that has authority over the wind and the waves? If we see Jesus there on that boat right after the storm, we begin to see God for who he, who he really is, the God of the universe. But there's more. We're not even halfway across the lake. We're not even to the other side. So what happens then when they do arrive in the land of the Gerasenes? I'll read it to you. This is chapter 5, starting at the beginning, just the first several verses. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Any fears that the Capernaumites may have had about the land of the Gerasenes were coming true. (laughs) Jesus had just stepped off the boat and suddenly a lunatic, a totally bonkers, foaming at the mouth, crazy man comes running at them. I told you we should have stayed in Capernaum. I'll bet it was said again then. And I'll just summarize the rest of the story, what happens from there. Jesus uh, realizes that the man is full of, of demon possession. Jesus starts addressing the demons in the man. He commands the demons out of the man, and he sends the demons, you know the story, don't you, into a herd of nearby pigs. The pigs, upon receiving that gift from Jesus, thanks Jesus, what do they do? They jump off a cliff to their deaths. And then in verse 15, the man, the lunatic, is found clothed and in his right mind. Why did Jesus bring the Capernaumites over to the other side? He wanted to show them that he has authority and power over natural disaster and spiritual attack. I think he wanted to show them, to prove to them that he was who he said he was. What does that whole story have to do with you and me this morning? There are three applications I want us to understand this morning. One, I think Jesus is still in the business 
of inviting people to go to the other side. Two, if he does invite you to go to the other side with him, he's in the boat. And three, let us never forget that Jesus crossed many borders to come to us. I'm just going to explain all three of those briefly, and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. Number one, Jesus is still in the business of inviting people to the other side. I don't know what your Capernaum is, what your place of familiarity and comfort and routine is, but I know that oftentimes Jesus does say, come out of there with me. I've got some place I want to take you. And your fears about that invitation may be totally legitimate. The Capernaumites' fears were legitimate, weren't they? But perhaps he has something he wants to show you there. Many of you in this room answered that call from Jesus just a few short months ago when the storm came through. Maybe the power was still out in your house here in Greenwich, but you heard that some people were going into Breezy Point or Far Rockaway, and you heard Jesus say, come on, let's go to that side. And you went. Again, some of your fears may have been legitimate. I was on the phone with somebody during that time who was kind of trying to decide whether or not to go on one of our Saturday trips into Far Rockaway. And he had seen the images on the news of the long gas lines in the Rockaways and beyond. And he had only three quarters of a tank of gas. And he said, Nathan, I don't know if I can go. Even if I do make it there and back with this gas, I won't have gas for the next week to get to work. His fear was legitimate, wasn't it? But he said, I'll go. And he went. I want to tell you another story of where I heard Jesus' voice saying, come, let's go to the other side. We have a guest with us this morning named Dexter. I'm pointing at him right now. Hi, Dexter. We went to Dexter's house in Far Rockaway. I don't remember how we got his name and address. It came as a text. I think it was maybe Pastor Demos from the Bronx or somebody. Anyway, we showed up at Dexter's house. We were helping him. The storm had hit his house. Everything was ruined inside. We were in his crawl space pulling out um, insulation that was just turning to mold and furniture. And we took a little break. We paused late in the morning. And there was a lot of us volunteering there in his home. And Dexter said, You know, guys, I know of somebody else in the neighborhood who has it worse than I do. Let's go help them. And we went. Jesus said, come, I want you to come even farther. Come to the other side with me. Dexter, I heard Jesus' voice when you did that. You could have kept us in your home, working on your home, but unselfishly you said, let's go help someone else who needs more help than I do. We heard Jesus beckoning us to go farther. Jesus invites people to get into his boat and go to those places. But the second application is that we must remember, if that's true, if he's invited us to come, we must know that he's in the boat. Even if it feels sometimes like he's sleeping on the cushion in the stern, we can wake him up and say, don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care that we're perishing? And then watch as he displays his power and his authority. He can calm the raging wind and the raging sea. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, it's a nice story from the New Testament. Jesus speaks into the wind and the waves. But what about the wind and the waves that came and actually hit the shore in Hurricane Sandy? 
Where was Jesus in that storm? Doesn't he have authority over the wind and the waves? Why didn't he speak against those? Well, I'll tell you where I saw Jesus calming the wind and the waves. We arrived at Janice's home one Saturday morning after the storm. I'm going to cry a little bit. Um, And Janice's house was hit so hard by the storm. The storm, the Storm tide was about chest high for me, and everything was ruined in her home, including her car. Everything just turning into moldy, rotten garbage. Everything, earthly belongings, precious belongings, photo albums, furniture that she had explained come through the generations into her possession. Everything that was once so precious to her was now garbage. It was our job uh, to take all of that stuff, to scoop it up, put it in big garbage bags, and bring it out to the curb and turn it into a big pile of garbage. That was the situation. Now, we didn't know Janice. She didn't know us. We just got her name and address. Again, I don't really remember how, but we showed up. There we were. And I remember this moment very clearly. I had scooped up a whole um, garbage bag full of stuff, and I was walking towards the door to bring it out onto the curb, and suddenly I heard a voice in the room next to me, and it was Janice. She was singing. She was singing, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. When a lot of other people in Far Rockaway that day were saying, why me? Or where is God? Janice was worshiping amidst the ruins. How is that possible? I think it's possible because Janice has Jesus in the boat of her heart and he calmed the raging storm in her heart so that she can have a peace to walk through her home which had turned to rubbish and praise God. Jesus said it would be so. At the Last Supper when he's describing to his disciples that he's no longer going to be physically present with them but he's sending a comforter, the Holy Spirit, he says this in John 14 verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Whereas Jesus can no longer physically be in our physical boats and calm the physical wind and waves that may come into our lives, although he still can do that if he wants to, he offers to calm the raging seas in our hearts. I saw it on full display in Janice. I heard her voice, and as we were walking, again, we didn't know each other. I heard her voice. We were walking towards the door. I finished the phrase with her. We locked eyes, and we looked at each other knowing that we were brother and sister in Christ, and we finished the phrase. Maybe you'll finish it with me now. Um, You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Can you imagine singing that song as you walked through your own home that had been utterly destroyed by a freak superstorm? That's the kind of peace that Jesus offers if he's in your boat. Third application Let us never forget that Jesus crossed many borders to come to us. If you're like me, you read these stories in Mark 4 and Mark 5, and 
perhaps you think you relate more to the folks in Capernaum. The nice, small-town, business-owning, church-going, faithful people that Jesus can invite to get in the boat with him. But if you look at this through God's eyes, if you're honest about your sinful condition, you know that you actually have more in common with the man on the eastern shore than you do with the Capernaumites. Because of sin and what it's done to our hearts, we are in chains. We are not in our right minds. We are among the tombs. The Bible describes our sinful state as being dead and imprisoned and blind and impoverished. Jesus came and said, I am good news for the poor and the blind and the imprisoned. And if we don't understand ourselves, any measure of poverty that we might have, any measure of imprisonment, then we know that Jesus doesn't have any business with us. He has come across a great distance to come to our shore to set us free from those chains. He's come from his safe shore in heaven all the way here to earth, and he sees us in our sin. And he extracts that sin from us like he did to the man in the garrisons. But instead of sending our sin off to a herd of pigs, he takes it upon himself. And his fate became the same as that of the pigs for us. We must understand that we are locked in our sin and death. And Jesus comes in his mercy and releases us from it. So that we can have healing and hope and redemption and a future with him. In that sense, we're all in the same boat. We all are in need of rescue. So that when he calls us to go to the other side with him, we'll go, not without fear perhaps, but we'll go in tremendous faith for him. The Bible says that if we are in Christ, we are one. We're one because he needs to rescue all of us. And he can take us then through any storm. You want to get in the boat with Jesus and see him display his power? Let's go to the other side. Amen.